Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. At this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our uh, both classes, three to five-year-olds and six to seven-year-olds, uh, so they can head out to their class. Uh, for the rest of us, we are continuing in Luke today, so Luke chapter 1. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab those, turn them on, whatever that looks like. Uh, turn to Luke 1. We're going to be in verses 57, and, and we're going to cover probably the, the largest chunk um, that we will do throughout Luke, uh, but we will be looking at 57 through 80 um, as we walk through this. A couple of things before we jump into this. Uh, one is obviously my voice, and so I'm not doing this to try to like you know sound more macho. Um, <clears throat> it, it just is what it is. I lose my voice every once in a while, so uh, we'll see how far it goes. Uh, second thing I wanted to point out: um, <clears throat> multiple people have asked us this week in light of Roe v. Wade uh, if we were going to make a statement regarding that, and so um, I'm going to give you a half answer. Uh, based on this, uh, the first part is if you uh, want to know where we land as far as just our position on babies and when is a baby, when does life begin, uh, go back <clears throat> and listen to Luke chapter 1, uh, our, our, the fourth one. This is our sixth one in the series. Listen to the fourth uh, sermon. So we walked through uh, the whole idea of, of what we kind of believe about what a baby is and when a baby is. Uh, so go back and listen to that on that perspective of it. On the perspective of women and being pro-woman and being pro-life in that regard, as far as our care of women and ongoing care of women, uh, we didn't want to just come up here and just give, a, 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 honestly, a half-hearted, half-prepared statement in regards to that. What we would rather do is actually write out uh, a document that states kind of where we're putting our money, where our mouth is, our time, where our mouth is, our energy, where our mouth is, our serving, where our mouth is. And we want to be able to actually give you opportunities on what it looks like to actually engage into this thing rather than just being talking points on a social media platform. So we don't want to just do that. We want to actually show where we are stepping into the needs that are created in regards to what's going on with, with this situation in our current cultural climate. So that is a half answer because it doesn't really answer much, uh, but it does answer the fact that we are processing it, thinking through it, praying through it, and also seeking out all of the opportunities for us to be the church um, in the midst of needs when it comes to being about life, and that is everyone involved um, from womb to the tomb. And so think about that as we just continue and look for that as we um, shoot those things out in the, in the coming weeks. All right, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Uh, we're going to dive into this, and um, th this one is a good one because, uh, I mean, again, and, and it's not that it's also in line with everything going on in our political climate right now, but everything has been kind of wrapped around births, and, and it's been wrapped around uh, two births primarily. It's been the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist, the prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ, 
both of those two pregnant women coming together and having a celebration and a worship service in their home on, on you know, what it means to be pregnant and what it means to have God giving them this gracious gift and what it looks like for uh, them just sharing in this joy together and rejoicing with one another, uh, what it means to be blessed in that regard. And so, so they've been talking about all of this and basically have been kind of walking through each other's trimesters up until this point now where John the Baptist, who is, again, about six months further along than Jesus, uh, is, it's the time for him to, to come out. It's time for him to be born. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to be looking at a couple of things here. One is, uh, what is God doing in this? Like, what, what is he doing with the people around this event that is happening? In addition to that, what is he doing with John the Baptist? And primarily the name that is given to him, the role that he's going to fulfill. And then how does that ultimately impact us as well, um, as far as for us today? And so we're going to dive into these things, starting with verse 57. Here we go. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So the first thing that I want you to see um, out of these two verses, one is that good news should be shared. Good news should be shared. All right, like, and we, we've talked about it. When we talk about evangelism, when we talk about anything that you experience that has cause for rejoicing or cause for celebration, your natural instinct is to share it. You're, well, what we don't want to do in those moments is, is have something that's exciting and then just like, oh, I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to share it with anybody. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to celebrate this thing. No, like our, we are designed, we are wired, hardwired by God to be worshipers, to be people who express excitement, express celebration. And that's exactly what they were doing. They've been up to this point, hush, hush about the pregnancy. All right, because again, her being old age and barren, she did not want the townspeople making a, a, a joke about her or her being the butt of the joke or anything along those lines. So they've kept it hush-hush literally up until this point of delivery to where she now is sharing the news. So much so that her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. So it's a simple point, but sometimes we make it very difficult. We need to share good news. There's a proclamation going on here. I mean, this is, this is her feeling and experiencing James 1.17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is a good gift that they are experiencing, and they don't want to just keep this gift to themselves. They want to share this gift with others. And so not only are they rejoicing, but because of their great news, the people around them, their neighbors and their relatives, now also have an opportunity to rejoice. Again, this is Romans 12, 15 that gives this language where it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn or weep with those who weep. How do you know when to rejoice and when to weep with those whom you're in community with? Well, like you have to be in community with them. You have to share what's going on in your life. You have to share news about your life. And so like this weekend, our, our uh, shepherd turned two. So we had a birthday party and, and we had a birthday party where people like we shared the news. Like we shared the good thing. And we then went to another birthday party and more people were there. And we shared good news. Like we rejoiced with one another about a good thing that was happening. 
In addition to that, there are times when people are mourning and they're weeping, and we are to enter into that. And so what we should be thinking at all times as a church is we need to carry with one another our experiences. And so if there's something that you're rejoicing about, don't just keep that for yourself, but rejoice with others. Like invite people to rejoice with you. And if you're a person where you're like right now in your life, I don't have anything to rejoice about. I have nothing in my life to celebrate. Well, then look for it in someone else's life. Look for something to celebrate in someone else's life. Look for something that God is doing in someone else's life that is cause for rejoicing and enter into their rejoicing. Thank you, God, that you are doing this for them, that you are being good to them, that you are being gracious to them. That's hard for us to do because, again, why we're selfish people. Like, we want it all for ourselves and sometimes the way God actually brings rejoicing for you is when you see it happen for someone else. And you're like, well, that one kind of stings a little bit. Like, I want it to happen to me. Again, God is God. God loves you. God's going to provide for you. We've talked about that. Matthew 6, don't look at the, like, don't look at the birds of the air. They neither seep nor, uh, they neither, <laughs> get my words going out, right? They don't have to worry about where their food's going to come from. All right, like they don't have to worry about that. What we do is we don't have to worry about what God's going to give us or not give us. We seek first the Lord and we trust that. We know that he will give us what we need in time when we need it. And so we can rejoice with others when they do receive what they need in times when they need it. We can rejoice when we are there. Life may not be easier, but it should feel lighter because we have others carrying it with us. You see, the beauty in carrying things with one another is that the burdens do feel lighter and the celebrations feel deeper. Like that's the beauty of when you have others that rejoice with you is the rejoicing is deeper because you're feeling it and you're experiencing it among multitude of people. That's one of the reasons why, again, we love corporate gatherings and worship is because Worshiping alone is one thing, but worshiping together is adding volume, all right? It's adding fuel to the fire. And the same thing is in rejoicing and weeping, mourning and loss. I guess when you're able to come together and celebrate with others, it feels more expressive when it's collective. And the same time, when you are weeping and mourning and you're experiencing loss and you're experiencing despair and heartache and you invite others into that and they come alongside you and they say, we know, we know, we've felt this before, we've gone through this before, we've walked through this before, we've seen God's faithfulness here before, it feels lighter. If God was faithful to you, he will also be faithful to me. We can experience that. And so good news must be shared. Share our experiences. That's exactly what they're doing here. The second thing I want you to see here is that they give him a name that is worthy to be called. A name worthy to be called. And I'm going to give you the name first before I read it. John. All right. They give him the name John. Uh, you might be thinking, well, that's a fairly common name. Nothing too important about it. Sorry, John, in the back. Um, but I mean, we literally refer to people unidentified as John Doe. Like it's, it's, it's one of the most common names that can be out there. And so what's, what's the fuss about the name John? Well, for starters, it means this. Jehovah is a gracious giver. God is a gracious giver. Look at the text, verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. 
But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now remember, Zechariah, he, he still rendered mute, all right? So like full term, nine months, not a word came out of his mouth, all right? Because of when he was questioning God back during the prophecy of when Gabriel showed up and said, y'all will have a child. And he's like, we're old, impossible, not going to happen. He just questioned way too much. And God said, just be quiet, all right? And be quiet for like nine months, okay? And then at the end of that, we'll, we'll see what happens. So he's still, he's still hush-hush over here. So uh, they made signs to his father inquiring what he would call him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Straight to the point. And they all wondered. All right, there's some confusion going on. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, uh, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So a couple of quick points here. First of all, people are by nature just skeptical. All right, people are by nature skeptical. Everyone in conversation are wondering what is true and what's a lie. All right, like if you go golfing anytime with any of us and, and you're kind of like maybe ahead of the person, you're looking back and they're hitting a tree and they're hitting this tree and they're hitting a cross and then they get up there and they're like, yeah, man, I, I, I got par. We're like, no, like you're skeptical. All right, you're like, let me, hold on, let's, let's start counting these back. Like by nature, that's how we are with everybody. When someone's telling a story, I mean, it's like, and, and Kelsey, I mean, she gets on to me for this all the time, but she's like, every time Dwayne tells a story, that story gets more exaggerated um, every single time. Like there's details that get added in. I was like, well, maybe I'm now remembering more details uh, about whatever the event was. Uh, but by nature, we are skeptical people. And so as they're naming this child, the community around them, they're like, hey, this isn't what we traditionally do. This isn't how, this is not the way that the child should be named. Tradition is Zechariah names the child, but he's mute. So they're having to ask Elizabeth, Elizabeth, what's the name of the child? And she's like, his name's going to be John. And they're like, well, we still can't trust her, okay? So let's go back over here. And it's like, someone get this guy a pen and stone and so that he can write down what the name of this child is going to be. And he's like, she's right, it's John, all right? Like, they're just skeptical people. And so we're all on this process of trying to figure out, like, what is the truth? And they're in this moment trying to figure out this is a significant birth. What's the truth behind the name? Because names matter, Names matter. When they give a name to somebody, it's, it's almost like this is going to be your job description for the rest of your life, whatever your name is going to be. And so they want to make sure that they get it right in naming him. And so, again, he just continues on, doubles down. His name is John. Not only that, but God is finally going to loose my lips, loose my tongue, and allow me to be able to speak blessing this. So that was, again, part of their tradition was that the father would actually be the one to give the blessing for the name in order for it to, um, to, to, to be bound, I guess, in order for them to name the child that. So he gives them the name John, which again means Jehovah is a gracious giver. God is a gracious giver. So then they ask this question. If you're saying that God is a gracious giver, and that's the name that you're giving to this baby, 
then, then, then what should come of this child? Like, what's going to happen with this child that's going to literally be the job description? God is graciously giving something to us. And that's where we land next. And there's six things that we'll see out of Zechariah's prophecy that he gives here. Six things that we'll see where God is a gracious giver. Where he's taking prophecy and he's providing fulfillment. And these are, again, six beautiful truths for us um, to just continue to meditate on on a daily basis of just God's goodness and his faithfulness to us as a body. The first thing is, is that God actually does give us prophecy. All right, He gives us prophecy. The simplest way to define prophecy is literally a prediction. All right, A prediction. But when it comes to God's prophecy, he's not predicting the future as a gamble. Like, he, he's not going on to any of these, like, gambling sites and is saying, like, I predict, you know, the, uh, the Spurs to win, or I predict the Cowboys to win the Super Bowl. Like, he, he's not, like, just questioning gambling. He's not just saying, I'm predicting this to happen, but I'm not really sure if it will happen. That's not what prophecy is. What prophecy is, is God predicting the future by just letting us in on early what's actually going to happen. Like, that's all prophecy is. God's letting us in on early on what's going to happen in the future. And that's exactly what he does through Zechariah here with John the Baptist on what John's going to be and what that means for you and I today. And so here begins his prophecy. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the, from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, what Zechariah is, is ultimately declaring here is that, the God's, that God's promises from the mouths of the prophets of old, which again, you got to remember, this is not just like talking decades. We're talking centuries and even millennia here. All right? There's been 400 years of silence since God last spoke to the people through a prophet. So what's happening here is remarkable. Like, the United States of America is not even 400 years old, all right? So we're, we're talking, this is, this is a long time that God has been silent, uh, which again is, is, is kind of peeking you into this idea of Zechariah being silent for nine months. It's a fulfillment of even God opening his mouth and no longer being silent to prophesy about what he is ultimately going to accomplish and do. God is the one breaking the silence here. It puts his mouth being rendered mute during the pregnancy into a bit more perspective as though God himself was mute for 400 years. So they've had the knowledge of hope and what to expect, and now they're starting to feel hope. They've had the knowledge for 400 years of what they're to look for and what they're to expect, but with this child showing up and Zechariah giving this prophecy, all of a sudden now the people are beginning to rejoice. They're beginning to feel the fulfilling or the fulfillment of the prophecies that they have been given in the past. 
So God gives us prophecy through Father Zech, and now he is also graciously gives us a new prophet through his son John, as we see in verse 76. Look at it here. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So this is the second point that God gives us. Again, Jehovah, God is a gracious giver. God gives us a prophet. Now this right here is literally job, the job description for John the Baptist. You've got one job. Go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Go before, before the Lord to prepare his ways. Make sure that the people know what to look for when Jesus shows up. Make sure that the people know what to look for when Jesus shows up. Make sure they don't miss him. Make sure that they know that their Savior that's been promised to us from the mouths of the prophets of old is literally going to be here soon, all right? He's like, he's six months behind me, okay? Like that's what John the Baptist has literally declared. His life is dedicated to preaching and proclaiming is that he must increase, I must decrease. Probably the most famous line that has come out of John the Baptist's mouth. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And if there's anything going on in our cultural climate, that should be what we are proclaiming at every moment. In this moment, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And that's him coming as a prophet, a mouthpiece of God. And why does he come as a prophet? Because God wants to give us even more than that. He wants to graciously give us knowledge. You see this in verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is important because knowledge is not something we are born with. Okay? No, nobody in this room is born a genius. Like you, you get that, right? You might have natural tendencies and, 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 and DNA or whatever that, that, that might help you get along and how you learn. But no one's born a genius. You have to process information that comes in the form of knowledge that, that lands in your mind that you're able to categorize and inform thoughts and then have a conclusion. Like that process has to happen for every person that is born. And so God here is a gracious giver of knowledge leading to what we ultimately need to understand in order to receive his salvation, which is the forgiveness of their sins. That's why Romans 10 talks about how, well, how we can't believe unless someone informs us. Like we, we can't, we're not born with this just uh, innate ability to just believe that Jesus is Lord. Like, like no one has that innate ability. No one is born with, quote unquote, faith to believe. Like we have to have the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God who has come down from heaven, who has lived the perfect life, who has died the perfect death, who rose three days later to guarantee for us a new life as we put to death our old life, that knowledge has to come to our minds in order for us to understand it and dwell it down into our hearts so that we are rebirthed into faith in Jesus Christ. We have to have that knowledge. Again, why Romans 10 tells us, like, how can you, um, how can you believe unless you've heard and how can you hear unless someone teaches you? Someone gives you the knowledge of what we are proclaiming. 
This is why Matthew 28 in our, our mission statement as a community of faith, as a church, is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Like, that's not like just this little add-on to the Great Commission. That, that's not like, hey, once you get them saved, this just keeps you busy until he comes back. No, like this is foundational to the Great Commission. Is teaching people who Jesus Christ is and what the Bible says about him. What the Bible says about God's creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration, and the consummation of all things in the end. What is the whole picture teaching us? What is God teaching us and communicating to us through his word? We are to proclaim that and teach that because, again, he gives us knowledge of our salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this forgiveness of sins is tied to God being a gracious giver of mercy. This is number four. God gives us mercy. Verse 78 says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This might be one of my favorite verses in describing the mercy of God and the way it feels when we receive it. First of all, Luke tells us that the mercy of God is tender. Now, many of us don't think about God in a tender way uh, towards us when we are in need of forgiveness. Like, that's just not our, our first posture. Our first posture is, is probably if we're in need of forgiveness, it's because we've done something wrong. And typically when we do something wrong, we're... we're we're receiving discipline. We're receiving punishment. We're receiving uh, time out. We're receiving spankings. We're receiving whatever, whatever it was like in your life growing up. Um, that's kind of how you project that onto God is this is what I'm going to receive. We don't think about it in a, in a tender way, a merciful way. We think about it rather in, in what do we deserve. And, and, and if you have a good view of the Bible, Romans 6.23 says that, when you sin, you deserve death. Like, you deserve punishment. Like, that, that technically is what we deserve. That's what the wages of sin is, is death. And so if, we're, if it's death and, and God is the one who's going to give the death, then, then kind of what I feel like is that I'm on death row, that I'm, I'm going to be receiving capital punishment from the Lord when I sin. And so when I, if I'm having that view of God as a judge and executor who's going to kill me when I sin... If I don't have a good view of his tender love and his mercy because of the work of Jesus Christ, then I will run from God rather than run to God. And so it's super important for us to, to build this into our theology, this tender mercy of our God, because it's with that posture in mind, it's hard for me to, to get to a place where I view God as tender with regards to his mercy he extends to me. Like I, I think about my own children when they act um, like little anarchists in our home. And, and I just want to lose my cool. <laughs> like, um, and I'm like, oh, you're crying now? Like, I'll give you something to cry about. I never say that to them. Um, maybe sometimes. But I mean, like, you, you think you're a patient person, and then you have kids, and you realize how, how much of a not patient person you are. And, and it's hard for me to look and view God in this way. And so when I start to view God, I'm like, God, help me. Like, more often than not, I don't come across tender when dealing with their shenanigans. 
And yet the way God deals with me when he extends his mercy to me, when he does it, he doesn't give me something to cry about. He does in the most tender way possible. He kneels down and he holds me through my sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. And he comforts me tenderly as he is forgiving me because of his son, Jesus. And Luke says, it's like you're experiencing the warmth of the sunrise for the first time when you've been in nothing but darkness of night. I'm more of a sunset guy uh, rather than a sunrise guy. I think literally the only time I see the sunrise is on Sunday morning because I get here before it. And so I get here, and, and, and even like this morning, I, in light of this, was experiencing it a little bit different, where like I, I see the sunrise fill this room as I'm in here just kind of walking through this. And, and, and it just, it did, it felt warmer this morning of just knowing that, that just like that warmth that comes in, the Heavenly Father envelops you tenderly as a gracious, good Father who forgives you of your sins because of what his son Jesus has done. He's tender in that way. Number five, God also graciously gives us the way. Verse 79 puts it this way, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What is the way of peace that God is so gracious to guide us into? We just see this in uh, John 14, 1 through 7, as Jesus speaks of this idea of being a guide and being the way. He says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And, and you can actually change the, the language of many rooms to be abodes. Okay? Abodes. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? A way of peace. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to these abodes, which he refers to as myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, this is doubting Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How can we be guided? How can we get there? This is part of John's job. Verse 6, he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, abiding in me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. You do abide in him because you have seen me and you abide in me. So this is a context of abiding in Christ where he refers to himself as this guiding principle, as this guiding light, as the way in order to get to the Father and, and to receive this gracious gift that he is providing to us. And he says this in three, three ways, he, that he's the way, the truth, and life. We want to know the way to peace. Everyone is working their lives in such a way that it fulfills their idea of peace, of happiness, of fulfillment, of the good life, a sense of nirvana, whatever it might look like. like everyone is trying to live their life in such a way that it is the way. The way to peace. The way to life. And Jesus says, I'm that way. And not only am I that way, but I'm going to be the truth that you need to understand what that way of life looks like. 
Because of that, we're, we're trying to make sense of everything that happens with us. We, what is truth? Who is right? Who is wrong? On which standard are we measuring right and wrong? Again, the current cultural climate is, uh, is that truth is relative. You get to dictate what you deem the absolute truth. What is, what is your truth? What is my truth? You can't tell me what my truth is. And Jesus in heaven is sitting on his throne, looking at his father and saying, I think now is a good time for me to go tell them what the truth is. Like that, that's what he's doing. Now he's going to come and do that in a tender and gracious and giving way. But he's going to tell us this is the truth. This is the standard by which God created everything in order for it to design in such a way that leads to life and life abundant. Life that is flourishing, life that is holy, life that is righteous, life that is good, life that is cause for rejoicing, life that is cause for celebration. If we don't have an absolute truth by which all things are measured against, then we actually do live out of relative anarchy, which is a state of disorder due to absence or non-recognition of truth and authority. Jesus Essentially, no matter what is going on, Jesus is our true north. He's our true north. He's our true north. That's why, again, when we find ourselves in difficult situations like navigating the Roe v. Wade decision, we don't turn to our truth. We, turn to, we don't turn to our feelings on the matter. We don't even turn to science or statistics. We must first turn to the absolute truth in the person of Jesus Christ because he says, I'm the truth. I'm the truth. And Jesus Christ is the standard of righteousness that gives us the way to live, the truth about how we live and the life that leads to flourishing. Again, Jesus is good. He's good. That's why he says in John uh, 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I mean, right now, that's what, that's what both sides of the coin are saying the other is, is causing. Right? Both sides are saying the other is causing. You're, 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 you're stealing my life. You're killing my life. You're destroying life. Both sides of the coin are, are literally accusing each other of the exact same thing. Jesus is the only one who says that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's saying, I came that they in the womb will have life and have it abundantly. He's saying, I also came that women will have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the only one who can be neutral in the, the conversation and actually provide life to everyone involved. Everyone involved. So if he has the answers, if he's the way, the truth, and the life, we have to first go to him and filter everything through Christ. Through Christ. So we've got work to do in that. And if you're wondering where to begin, the last thing we see in this passage is an example for us. God graciously gives us an example in the birth of John the Baptist. See verse 80. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Church, John was leaping for joy in the womb. Which meant, as it already said, he was already filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, even he still needed to grow 
and become strong in his faith and in the spirit of the Lord. What we need to see from that, and this is for every person in this room, every person in this room. I don't care if you're an elder or if you're an infant in someone's arms right now. Every person in this room needs to grow and continue to become strong in the faith that we have. You never stop growing in your faith. You never stop growing in the knowledge of how to be more fruitful Christian and Christ-following. I don't care, again, if you were raised in your church and you know your Bible. You don't. You don't. I mean, every week there's still people who ask me questions. Hey, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, let me go study. Let me go look it up. Like, that's the most gracious thing I can give you is, and I don't know, let me go study, form, uh, form an idea around what other people have said about the topic as well, and bring it to you and say, let's look at this together. That, that's the most gracious thing I can give to you. Not a, uh, let me pretend that I already know what I know that I don't know, and then just tell you. No. If I'm informed on the, the I'll, I'll tell you, but I'm also hope that you would say, where do you get that from? Where do you get that from? We are all growing and need to continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, being taught all that Jesus has commanded us so that we become strong in spirit. What we don't need are stagnant, not growing anymore, weak in the faith believers. That's not what the church needs right now. That's not what the community needs right now. That's not what the world needs right now. What the world needs right now, if, if, if again, if we're sitting in this room and we're believing what the book says, which is everyone is born a sinner. And because of that, again, you can look Romans 3.23. So if you're at, where do you get that? Romans 3.23, um, everyone has sinned. Like, that's just what it says. There's not one person who has not sinned except for Jesus Christ. No one is righteous. No one seeks after the Lord. Everyone goes their own way. Everyone does evil. That's Romans 3.23. And then moving into Romans 6.23, this is the Romans road here, as they used to call it. Romans 6.23 is, uh, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23 is, is the wages of sin is death. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore deserve death. So if we believe what the book says, that's bad news for everyone in the entire world. It's bad news for everyone. But if we believe what the book says, there's good news that John the Baptist is born to proclaim is that he's preparing the way for his cousin who's coming along after him, Jesus Christ, who's going to live perfectly because we couldn't, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. He did not sin. He met the glory of God because he is God. He's the only hypostatic union, fully God, fully man to ever exist. He is living perfectly the righteous standard of God. And because he's earning that righteousness, he's earning that position for us, the good news is, is that he then offers substitution. He offers an exchange. And, and again, if we believe this, 
He says, I'm going to take your wages of sin, death, and I'm going to place myself on the cross in your position, and then I'm going to give you everything that I earned, righteousness. I'm going to make that great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, Jesus, goes to become sin for us on the cross so that in exchange we become the righteousness of God. We get to experience the tender, loving, mercy, and grace of God forgiving us of our sins, past, present, and future. And then the Father adopts us into the family as he raises us to a new life. He raises us to a new life where we are considered saints. We are considered righteous. We receive a new identity that is the identity of Jesus Christ himself. So if he's able to look upon Jesus at Jesus, um, which we'll get to this, but when he baptizes Jesus, which, which John does that, John baptizes Jesus, and when he baptizes Jesus, the heavenly Father looks down at him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That identity, the way God sees Jesus, when Jesus comes to live in us, that abode, that abiding relationship, I in him and him in me, God now looks at us like he looks at Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Forgiven. He now delights in us. No longer in the position of wrath, no longer in the position of wages of, of sin is death. But now you get to get life and life abundant. Bad news becomes good news. Becomes good news. If we believe that, the most cruel thing that we could possibly ever do is withhold that information from others. John is an example for us. His entire life is devoted to making sure people don't miss Jesus. To withhold that knowledge, again, that God graciously gives, to withhold that knowledge is to actually damn other people. That's what it is. And that's what you're right now, you're like, that's, that, that, that's, hard. that's heavy, that's hard. What I'm hoping for us as a church is I know the excuses. Well, I'm not comfortable sharing. What if I lose a friend over the matter? What if they hate me? What if they, you know, persecute us? What if, uh, what if they have questions that I don't have answers to? Like, we know all of the excuses. We know them. And that's why we're calling us as a church to do as John did continue to grow and be strengthened in the spirit of the Lord. That's it. So that those excuses begin to get smaller and smaller and the confidence and the rejoicing in this good news gets to that place where you can't wait to share it. Again, because this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. I mean... If someone were to ask you, what's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? I hope it's not your wedding day. I hope it's not the firstborn or the first time that you had a child that was born. I hope it's not a, a career advancement that you had. I hope it's not a reconciliation that you had within uh, a family strife issue or whatever it might have been. I hope it's not a, a Christmas present that you received. 
I hope those things that we are experiencing on this earth that are temporary and material are not the greatest things that have ever happened to us. If someone were to ask you, what's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? My hope is that you were to say, it's the day that I met Jesus and he forgave me of my sins and I no longer will spend an eternity in hell, but I will spend an eternity in heaven with him as my gracious father. That's the greatest day of my life. That's the greatest day of my life. And and it's combination of a fifth grader next door to me when I was in seventh grade who came outside and said, can you create that bush? And I'm like, what? (laughs) No. He's like, I know who can and I know who did, but also this bush is broken. It's actually not the way it should look because of sin in the world. There's sin in the world that breaks things. You're broken because of your sin. But God is good and gracious because he sent Jesus to save us of our sins and forgive us. Do you want Jesus to forgive you of your sins? That, that, that was, again, that's why we do what we do in Little District. Because a fifth grader is the first person that shared the gospel with me. And I'm a seventh grader in the position of influence. All right? At that time, all I'm watching is like Simpsons and Ren and Stimpy. And like it's my dad was taking me to like Kiss concerts and ACD. Like it was, I'm not saying those things are like all wrong. But at the same time, like that was my upbringing and experience. I'm in the position of, hey, let's get in trouble. Like I'm the negative influence to him next door. And as a fifth grader, it would be easy for him to be like, I want to be like the cool kids. I'm not saying I was a cool kid, but I'm just saying He's like, I want to be like the cool kids next door. But no, he was so confident and so rejoicing in his Savior that he shared him with me. That he shared him with me. And in that moment, I could have been like, you're a little idiot punk fifth grader, like next door. Like, I don't want anything to do with your Jesus. I'm never going to hang out with you. I mean, he was risking everything. He's risking wiffle ball in the backyard. He's risking us playing hockey in the street. He's, He's risking all of it. To share Christ with me. And to this day, he and I still talk because he's, he's now gone on to plant churches in Florida as well as coming back to Tennessee and planting churches in Tennessee. We call him Big Red. Like, he's an awesome dude that I owe my life to in the sense that he's the first person to share with me Jesus Christ. And then later to invite me to his church where more conversations continued about who Jesus was that then led to me having conversations with my mom and my dad and my brother so that when I was a freshman in high school, as a family, we all got baptized on January 26, 2002. Like it all happened because someone was willing to get out of their comfort zone, knowing what they were risking to share this good news. John the Baptist is an example What we need to do is we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel so that we can be strengthened in spirit in regards to the gospel so that we can prepare the way for others to receive Jesus Christ when we teach the good news to them and we share it with them so that their eternity is now abundant. Abundant. Let's pray and then we'll head into communion. Father, we thank you so much for your your message through John. Father, I wanted this message to focus more on the gift that you give versus the person of John the Baptist. The reason why is because I believe that's exactly what he would want me to do. 
Jesus must increase, he must decrease. John the Baptist is not the great gift. The great gift of God being a gracious giver is the fact that he is sending people to prepare the way for the ultimate gift, which is Jesus Christ. That he is tender, merciful, and gracious to us. That he loves us and that he forgives us. He forgives us. And that is cause for rejoicing. It's cause for rejoicing. Father, continue to grow us in our knowledge of you. If that's helping us to rework our schedules so that we can enter into Bible studies with one another or enter into institute classes so that we can just continue to inform our minds and be taught all that you've commanded us, then God, help us, give us that conviction. In addition to that, Lord, just continue to strengthen us in spirit. May your Holy Spirit just guide us And help us to set aside any of those anxieties that we have when it comes to sharing this good news. For it's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. As we come to this time of communion, I'm going to go ahead and have you stand. I'm going to have you go ahead and go back and get the elements if you don't have them. And then come back to your seats um, as we partake of this together. If you're not a believer in the room and you're still kind of wrestling with that process, we we ask that you abstain because this is a meal for believers. If you are like, hey, I'm not a believer, but I'm believing in Jesus today. I'm trusting in him for the first time. I'm understanding his good news for me. Then we invite you to partake of this because it's also a proclamation that Jesus has died for you, that he is forgiving you of your sins, and that you do get to receive this meal as a celebration in remembering what he has done for you. And one of the things that I did a few weeks ago um, is, is to kind of add a little bit more weight to what we're doing so that it doesn't just constantly become repetitious, is I want us to think about the things this week. Um, maybe it's been an argument that you've had with somebody. I mean, there's cause for arguing this week, apparently. Um, so maybe there was some arguing that was going on, and you're like, you know what? I might not have had the best posture. I might not have, have reacted, or, or maybe I did react in a way that was not Christ-honoring, that was not Christ-like. Maybe there was truth spoken, but it was done in a way that was hurtful uh, rather than tender and loving. And so maybe this is a moment where we can take that sin and we can place it on Jesus because that's why he crushed his body and that's why he shed his blood. Maybe this week there's other things going on in your life where you know, hey, these are some things that are weighty for me. These are some things that, that I just constantly keep feeling like I, I don't like this about myself. I, I want to be more disciplined in this way, but I keep giving myself over to laziness or I keep giving myself over to indulgence or whatever it might be. And I just want to just get rid of that. This is, a, this is an opportunity for us to take those sins. And again, because Jesus crushed his body and because he shed his blood, he can remove those sins from us and we can walk out with 
clean and clear consciences in regards to that. So I want you to hold that wafer in your hand right now. And whatever those things are that feel crushing to you, like I don't like this about myself, I, 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 I send, <laughs> I send. And it's crushing. Like it just, my spirit, it's crushing. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He crushed his body for you. Partake of the cracker now. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those sins that we've committed this week that he is crushing his body for. At the same time, the wages of sin is death. And the way that God signifies life and death is blood. If there's blood in the veins and it's pumping and moving, there's life. And the spilling of blood represents death. That's why Jesus went to the cross, and that's why his blood was shed, so that it would be spilt, representing his death. He's putting to death your sin by the spilling of his blood. And that's why we remember that by partaking of the juice. So drink it in remembrance of him. And let's continue now to worship as we proclaim this good news back to him and say thank you. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at